Hello and welcome to the Spectrum Policy Podcast, brought to you by Policy Tracker, which provides news, research and training about spectrum management. My name is Richard Haas and I'm a journalist and analyst here at Policy Tracker. In 1998, a company called Iridium developed the first handheld satellite phone with global coverage. In the same year, the US Vice President at the time, Al Gore, made the first phone call on the network. But less than a year later, the company filed for bankruptcy. It was having trouble finding customers, and the phones were bulky and expensive. Although Iridium eventually survived, and the company still exists today, the whole ordeal showcased the risky economics of the satellite industry. Today, a new type of satellite service called Satellite Direct Device is starting to take shape, and companies such as Apple and SpaceX are showing an interest. It promises to connect directly to existing smartphones instead of satellite phones or special satellite dishes. With me here to talk about this new trend is satellite consultant Tim Farah. Tim is a consultant and someone we often come to to make sense of satellite stories. He runs his own consulting firm called TMF Associates. So, Tim, what are some examples of satellite direct-to-phone companies? Well, to date, the ability to send a text to a small device exists on Iridium and Global Stars Network, but previously it's been done to custom devices such as the Spot uh, Tracker that Global Star has sold for, for many years and the uh, in-reach device that Garmin has sold for the last decade or so. Um, now those texting capabilities are being moved into uh, the smartphone. So Apple has launched a service uh, where you have two-way texting with Global Star, albeit only for emergencies and for position reporting when you're outside coverage. And Iridium uh, is uh, reached an agreement with Qualcomm to include a similar two-way texting capability in the next generation of uh, smartphones using Qualcomm Snapdragon chipsets. So both of those will be enabling two-way texting. They won't offer uh, more functionality than you've been able to get on existing specialist devices. Uh, Other companies like SpaceX with uh, T-Mobile, like AST, uh, are also looking at more advanced services. Those could be voice, um, moderate speed data, um, but will require a whole bunch of new satellites to be launched to offer those services. And those, so those are still at a very early stage and the exact level of capability is still to be determined. Would you say what these companies are doing now is, is different to what Iridium was doing in the 90s in terms of the use cases trying to be? Well, back in the 90s, everyone thought that satellite capability would ultimately be included in standard mobile phones. That's been the the holy grail of mobile satellite services uh, for the last 30 years or so. Um, And at that point, the capability was initially limited to specialist devices because they needed large antennas. uh, They needed... Uh, you know, more power to communicate with the satellite. And, and because those devices were uh, you know, specialised to a particular system, uh, they didn't attract a mass market. So, you know, where we are today, we're trying to implement some of those capabilities into standard phones. That means that either you need a much bigger satellite to deliver all of the services that you could otherwise do on a existing mobile network, but to a 
phone with without that big antenna and with less power, or you need to limit the services to the uh, SMS-style texting uh, that is available on Iridium and Global Stars networks. Uh, though that you know the phones do have the capability to offer those services today uh, without needing these big new antennas. So right now everything is kind of limited to SMS and, and basic messaging, isn't it? But do you think that's realistically going to expand into voice and even data like some companies are promising? Well, it's even more limited than just SMS because at this point in time, Apple's only chosen to implement an emergency text messaging service. Uh, so you can get help, but you can't send an SMS to uh, uh, your friend or or you know, say, I'm here, or, or, or use it to send a tweet or something like that. So that limitation is really a limitation that's been implemented mainly for ease of getting market access. Although Iridium and Global Star have permission to operate in the vast majority of countries around the world, Apple still needs to apply for permission to... Uh, develop a new device using that network and get permission to uh, uh, sell its iPhone. So it's chosen to go down the path of simply enabling the emergency capabilities at this stage because it's much easier for a regulator to approve that emergency service rather than a full-on texting capability that might perhaps be seen by some operators as more of a threat. After all, the original iMessage implementation was certainly a big threat to terrestrial operators' SMS business. And so, you know, Apple has sort of limited it initially. Uh, the, the question is not technical, but regulatory and uh, business decision about whether they extend that to full-on texting. And then beyond that, as I say, you'll need even more capable satellites and new constellations to enable anything uh, more like voice and higher speed data. Right. Yeah, I heard someone from Apple talking about their satellite uh, solution. One of the things they mentioned is they ran into the problem of getting regulatory approval in you know, hundreds of countries. And many places, satellite phones as a concept are illegal. I, I think China and India is generally not allowed. So it probably helps them a lot to make the case to say this is just for emergency use and you know can't be used for uh, for anything else. Right, but even in China, uh, Apple has had to uh, remove the satellite capability because China uh, is very uh, concerned about uh, uh, any way of bypassing the terrestrial network uh, within the country. So, um, you know, that's been that's been a, that's been a concern um, that has already come again, up against them. And it will be very interesting to see how things play out in India, which, as you mentioned, is uh, historically uh, been very concerned about uh, satellite phones. It, you, the stories of people being imprisoned for bringing a satellite phone into the country and things like that. Wow. Yeah, I did realize Apple has not launched in China with the satellite feature. Um, we're going to dive into the weeds a bit more, I think. Something I've been covering on Policy Tracker is the kind of spectrum element, because there's kind of two ways of doing it, isn't there? You can go down the regular spectrum route of using satellite spectrum, kind of universally, internationally agreed upon to be used for satellite use. And then you can go the other route, which some smaller companies in SpaceX are doing, where they're going to reuse spectrum that's traditionally terrestrial in nature. Can you tell me more about that approach and, and why it's controversial? 
Well, that's right. I mean, you most of the satellite spectrum was allocated decades ago. Iridium and Global Star got their spectrum allocations in the mid-90s. Uh, other holders of satellite spectrum, like Inmarsat, got their spectrum even before that, back in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, so if you're a new entrant to this market, you don't have very many choices about where to go to get your spectrum. Uh, and so that's pushed uh, some new entrants like AST and SpaceX and Link to look at obtaining the rights to use terrestrial spectrum. The other side of that decision is also that by enabling standard terrestrial spectrum, really all you need is an agreement with the mobile operator uh, and then, in theory at least, any phone should be able to communicate with the satellite. Um, whereas if you're building in an existing satellite band into your handset, like uh, uh, Apple is doing with GlobalStar and Qualcomm is doing with Iridium, uh, you need a special chipset and a special frequency range to, uh, to enable that communication. And really then it's down to the handset manufacturer to make a decision about implementing this service. So it, it's not only two different regulatory choices and two different spectrum choices. It's also a choice of, you know, what is the channel that gets this implementation to market? And Apple and Global Star is, is you know, it's all under Apple's control because they control the handset, they control the software, software that goes with it. Uh, they have a billing relationship with customers. So all of those sorts of things are simple. It's a lot less simple with... Uh, Iridium and Global uh, and Qualcomm, where you have um, Qualcomm implementing a chipset, but then you have multiple Android handset manufacturers. You have Google controlling the Android operating system, uh, and even there, they don't necessarily have a billing relationship with all the Android customers. Um, but it's ten times more complicated when it comes to terrestrial spectrum. Uh, you really need to then go on a country-by-country -country basis, get a partnership with a mobile operator. Uh, you also need to resolve the issue of country boundaries. So in places like Europe, where there's a lot of small countries, uh, it's inevitable that concerns will pop up that uh, uh, the service could spill over boundaries. And, and so I think while some big countries may authorise the use of terrestrial spectrum and uh, particularly the U.S. is now looking at that with an FCC rulemaking on, on the subject. Um, it's going to be a lot harder in countries where uh, they are relatively small and there's concerns about spillover effects, uh, you know, as we've seen in Europe already with some regulators expressing concerns. Yeah, I, I believe the German regulator, and I wrote a story about this, uh, kind of tacitly uh, put out a response to an ITU filing saying, we're not so sure about it. AST, Space Bubble, one of these companies doing this, uh, using terrestrial spectrum in Germany. Now, AST hasn't announced that they're going to do anything in Germany, so it was a very kind of precautionary uh, thing. And the regulators did tell, tell me they were open to the idea, so they weren't entirely rejecting it as a possibility. But it, you're right, especially in Europe, I think the, the cross-border issues are, are going to be tough. Tell me more about the FCC rulemaking. So that's kind of the first step the FCC does in a process where they eventually come up with some kind of rule and it's quite unprecedented because we haven't seen any other countries address this uh, reuse of terrestrial spectrum. Well, I think a lot of other countries are glad that the FCC is taking this on. You know, most of the companies actually pushing for uh, satellite use of terrestrial spectrum are from the US. And so, you know, they fall to a large extent under FCC jurisdiction, even if some of them might use 
uh, ITU filings from other countries. Uh, and so, you know, the FCC has a lot of leverage to set the ground rules here. Uh, as I mentioned before, the US is also a relatively large country and therefore uh, the border concerns can be limited to some extent. Um, but the FCC is, you know, now issued uh, potential rules identifying a number of bands. It has, you know, taken on some of these border issues by saying, okay, we're only going to do this for terrestrial bands of spectrum where someone holds a full national license or for another part of the US that's geographically contiguous like Alaska or Hawaii or something like that. Um, and that limits the ability to use uh, all of the spectrum available, but it also clearly will help to limit some of the complaints you'd get from uh, uh, rival operators, because unlike most countries, the US allocates its spectrum on a, on a geographic basis, and there's lots of individual licenses for, for most of the bands across the country. And so it's a mix of operators, and there are relatively few national bands. So... You know, the FCC is setting these rules. It's going to have to go through a notice and comment period. That's going to take uh, quite a number of months. Uh, it's unusual for an MPRM to be decided in less than about a year. Uh, I think given the complexity of this proceeding, the FCC has already acknowledged it wants to handle uh, the simpler cases first and uh, not tackle things like uh, you know, licenses that are geographically fragmented, not tackle some of the other uh, more complex bands. Um, and in large, in, in many ways, the uh, rulemaking was written uh, quite favorably for SpaceX's application uh, because it is planning to use a uh, single national license that uh, T-Mobile holds. Uh, it introduces a lot more complexities for AST, uh, which was uh, planning to use spectrum from AT&T. Uh, so some of that spectrum, the uh, original cellular bands, is a fragmented band and potentially would be difficult to get licensed. Uh, the other part of the band that they were thinking of using was the first net spectrum. Uh, the FCC initially decided not to, uh, proposed use of that band. Now they have asked for comments on whether it should be included, although they have not at this stage proposed to include it in the list of bands to be authorised. So AST has a lot more heavy lifting to do uh, to get rules that are helpful to them out of this uh, rulemaking than SpaceX, which would clearly be allowed to do what it wants to do under the terms that the FCC has proposed uh, in the uh, rules as they're issued today. Yeah, I've been seeing your coverage of this on, on Twitter and you upset a lot of the AST uh, fan club, whatever this is. Uh, it's so kind of, I think it was born out of the whole GameStop era, wasn't it? It's these people who are very invested in a certain stock and they will attack you online if you say anything negative. But I think you're right to point out that their spectrum situation is maybe a bit more complicated uh, and the FCC uh, kind of initial plans reflect that that might be a bit more, they might get a bit more trouble um, in, in getting everything to work. Yes, I think it's going to be interesting to see how all of that evolves. I mean, you know, a 12 month or more period for decisions on an NPRM in of itself is challenging. Um, 
you know, perhaps not so much for SpaceX because it's still got a bunch of work to do getting its Starship up and running to to launch the larger satellites that would be needed to implement this uh, sort of service. But you know, AST you know wants to move forward. Uh, it's building uh, more satellites. It plans to launch some at the end of the year, and it may not have uh, the go ahead by that point uh, for. Uh, the services it wants to do, at least in the US. Now, as we've seen from Link, that doesn't necessarily prohibit the FCC from granting a license for operations outside the US, um, but I think any signal that uh, the FCC wasn't going to authorize AST services in the US uh, would be you know, concerning uh, for the company's investors. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the F people, other regulators will be looking uh, towards the FCC for leadership on this. And I think that's an important point because no one else has tried to tackle this. It's, it doesn't look like it's going to be brought up at the next World Radio Communication Conference either, which is at the end of this year. So I think it's it's worth pointing out there that the US is kind of trying to take a leadership role here. And, and with that comes a bit of risk. You know, they're doing something that hasn't been tried before, but I think they're trying to develop the domestic market, aren't they? Because a lot of these companies are American, as you mentioned. How do you think this will all shake out? I mean, you're an independent satellite consultant. You can say whether you have a lot of doubt in, in all of this. Uh, do you think these companies will have the same fate as Iridium? Or maybe we'll see a few of them kind of drop out or we'll see some consolidation? Or what, what do you think about the whole case for this service? Well, I think on the regulatory front, it's clear that satellite operators will need a backup plan in terms of spectrum. I think it, many people expect SpaceX to uh, look for alternatives in the satellite band. So, I mean, that in of itself would give more leverage in terms of its discussions with mobile operators around the world. Uh, it's made filings with the FCC to gain access potentially to the big LEO band, potentially to the 2 gigahertz band as well. Um, and so I think SpaceX will pursue a twin-track strategy. I think that any of these companies that just relies on use of terrestrial spectrum will have challenges because they will inevitably end up with a fragmented business where some countries may allow it, uh, some may eventually allow it after years of debate, and some may just not allow it at all, at least until there is some sort of general ITU agreement, which, as you say, may take another four years before we, we get to that point. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important to pursue that twin-track approach. I think the other side of it is also that it's important not to give people the wrong impression of the service capabilities. Uh, I think the biggest failure of Iridium, um, and you know, I was very much involved in uh, looking at that, the aftermath of that bankruptcy in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, yes, a lot of people say, well, the handsets were too big and too expensive. And other people say, well, the spread of cellular coverage was a huge negative in terms of shrinking the market. But in my view, a lot of the blame also needs to go to the fact that they set the wrong expectations. They basically went and surveyed customers and said, you want a phone that works anywhere in the world? And that was not what a satellite service could deliver. It didn't work 
in buildings reliably. It didn't work in cars reliably. It didn't work in a forest. It, it, it did work on top of a mountain, but there's not a lot of people who want to use it on top of a mountain other than the outdoor people who go and buy a, an in-reach service today. Um, and so that is important, is not to give people the wrong impression, because it's all too easy to go and do a survey of the, you know, yes, you'll always find lots of people saying, I want a service that works anywhere. And if you say, this looks like your regular 5G service, and it will even work indoors, and it will give you tens of megabits per second of data rate, um, then of course, lots of people are going to say, yes, of course, I'll pay for that. Uh, however, if you said, well, actually, this is a texting service where you have to be outdoors and you have to point the handset in the general direction of the satellite and you've got a little thing on your screen saying, you know, point it this way or turn around, which is how the Apple implementation works and the Qualcomm implementation works, then not very many people are going to pay much for that capability. And in fact, uh, you know, the best way to monetize that capability is probably going to be to sell more handsets as if you're Apple or uh, if you're Samsung or another Android manufacturer um, and absorb the cost of the messages that are sent as, as part of your strategy to increase your uh, handset market share. Um, so, you know, that's the unknown here is although there's a, a lot of claims about more advanced services, you know, SpaceX at least has been relatively cautious on the capabilities that they promised. They've talked about a few megabits per second, but that's in a beam and shared between hundreds, if not thousands of users. So they're talking about, you know, low kilobits per second of data and maybe enough for a voice call. And, you know, we don't know how much people are going to pay for that. And we don't know how much the orientation of the phone is going to matter. We don't know which phones will work better than others because one of the lessons that Google took away from its Loon project was that, you know, they'd done all their testing in the US with high-end uh, smartphones and then they took these balloons to developing countries and found that everyone's using super cheap uh, Chinese smartphones that have much worse RF performance because that's the way they made them cheap. They didn't spend a lot of time in optimizing the RF link and they found that a service that in the US with high-end smartphones looked pretty good and, and worked in buildings in a few places and worked in cars in a, quite a lot more places, you know, tended to only work indoors and more directly under the balloon than they had expected. So, So those are all big challenges and big unknowns that we're going to have to figure out as time goes on. And as I say, the biggest worry I have is when people come out and say, this is going to be 5G service everywhere in the world. You know, that is just not true. Yeah, I think I think these satellite companies should heed your advice for sure. Um, I mean, you saw with Apple, which is arguably kind of the most advanced uh, version of this because they've launched in the US and the UK and a few other European countries, I think. They spent nearly half a billion dollars on Global Star, the satellite provider, to to help fund this whole thing. And it sounds like they're probably not going to charge for it. And even if they did, that's quite an investment to to make your money on. So it's an incredibly expensive endeavor. And and all of that for not even SMS, but for for kind of emergency 
you know, proprietary messages. So it, I think it's quite uncertain, especially if you promise, over-promise, uh, as you mentioned. Right. It's easy for a handset manufacturer like Apple that sells hundreds of millions of phones a year. If it sells a few more million phones at $1,000 plus, uh, then it's easy to see how that's going to cover the costs it's, uh, of its investment in Global Star, uh, what it's paying for the capacity, what it's paying to upgrade the uh, satellites. Um, it's a lot harder for a mobile operator that makes its money off the service uh, if it is providing a service that it can't charge for. Now, of course, for T-Mobile, they do a lot of things to try and increase their market share and differentiate themselves. They, they offer you free internet on a lot of planes when you fly around the U.S., uh, you know, and I think to some degree you could pigeonhole their agreement with SpaceX as another way of uh, giving people more and giving them a reason to choose T-Mobile rather than Verizon or AT&T. Uh, but that's not going to work for everyone. If everyone is forced to offer this uh, capability or, or feels they need to, um, then you know it's going to cost money without necessarily shifting the market share. So I think you know, that's going to be an interesting one. And those people who've hung their hats on this is a revenue-generating activity um, have a lot more challenges than people who've hung it on. This is about a differentiator. This is about selling more handsets. This is about changing my market share. I don't need to promise something amazing. If you've got this emergency capability, you know, wouldn't you like to buy this handset or, or take the service from this particular operator uh, just to make sure you don't fall and break your leg and get lost and not rescued. Yeah, kind of a value-added service rather than a thing in itself as a as a revenue driver. Right, just like you know, having a nicer photo, fo uh, you know, better photos, better camera in your phone, uh, having higher quality voice, having better video, having. Uh, higher speed data, having an integrated email. So there's lots and lots of things that people put into phones uh, every you know time they produce a new one to try and gain a few points of market share. And at the very least, I think it's reasonable to expect this Apple Global Star deal to uh, deliver you know a modest boost to the attractiveness of an iPhone uh, compared to phones that do not have this capability. Right. Well, thank you, Tim. I appreciate you going through all this with me. It's something we're going to watch very closely on Policy Tracker and uh, definitely keep up on how this FCC proposal goes and if it gets replicated elsewhere. And if we even get some kind of international discussion on this, uh, maybe at WRC or in between those cycles. Thanks very much. As I mentioned, satellite direct-to-phone is an issue that we're covering quite closely here at Policy Tracker. You could read more about it on our news service, and we also recently published a sector overview for our research subscribers. You can find all of this on www.policytracker.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast. It's available on all major podcasting platforms. See you next time. <laughs>